Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? How's it going this week? What's new? <laughs> What's new? I know. Literally nothing is new. It sucks. <laughs> well, uh, the only thing that's new, which I guess is new, is the warm weather. We have some really beautiful weather, and so I've been able to sit outside every day, and my kids just started learning how to ride their bikes, and so today we were on the road for the first time. That's great. That is great. <laughs> and scary. Yeah. It's like the worst thing to have to go through as a parent that's not extremely serious is <laughs> teaching a kid how to ride a bike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have training wheels? No, no, not anymore. No, they're they're fully riding their bikes. They are. Oh, that's great. Good yeah. for them. Yeah. And yes. how is school reopening? <laughs> have you seen anything? Any news about that? How how are uh, your fellow parents responding to that? Well, I ran into one fellow parent uh, whose kids are not back at school, and I was out today with other friends whose kids are not back at school. There's a really interesting dynamic that was revealed in a, in a survey in the past week, I guess it was. And the survey showed that Anglophones and allophones, so Anglophones and people whose mother tongue is not English or French, are much more skeptical of the government and were less likely to send their kids back to school. And so this created like quite a hubbub. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, and we kind of talked about this a bit before, like, you know, there's there's a, a lot more, I think, anxiety and concern when you look at how the government's acting. And, and there are there, like, you know, there aren't many like cultural cues that like I would pick up in the same way that like a Francophone Quebecois would pick up from the, the from the provincial government. So I feel a little less like they're on top of stuff. Also, I mean, they're, they don't see, seem to be on top of stuff. But what was very interesting was in this survey, they also asked people like what their proximity is to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And what the survey showed was that where, I mean, the numbers might be off a little bit, but you'll get an idea from the proportions, but where 21% of of Francophone Quebecois know someone who's had COVID, it goes up to 32 or so percent for Anglophones and like 41 for Allophones. And that's a, that's a uh, province-wide Province-wide poll, yeah. I mean, I don't know how regionally representative it is, uh, so I don't know if most people were in Montreal or outside of Montreal, but they right. you know, they got enough representation for to have an allophone and an anglophone um, uh, survey segment. And and so it's just like, oh, so what's really happening here is actually just that the people who are touched by the virus are going to be more critical with how the government's been handling it. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> uh, what a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I've just been uh, trying to, now that school's done and the final exam went pretty good, I've just been trying to get to a normal sleep schedule and I'm finding that really difficult. Um, I've seen some people on Twitter respond uh, when I said that I was like on a polyphasic sleep schedule, which just means that I'm sleeping more than just one giant sleep in the night. And uh, I'm, I'm having a lot of trouble getting back to a regular sleep schedule. I just, I'm sleeping twice a day usually, uh, once between 6 a.m. and like noon-ish <laughs> or, or like 11, maybe 10 sometimes. And once between 9 p.m. and like 2 or 3. <laughs> it's wow. very, very weird. And I, I've been trying to get it back to normal, but... 
It's not. And I guess if that's what the body wants to do right now, maybe that's what it needs. But it's so strange. (laughs) (laughs) You should... You should get a job like, I don't know, as a server support person who can work in every time zone. Yeah, could could happen. Very possible right now. <laughs> so do we have anyone to thank before we get into our topic today, which is the arts and COVID? Yes, we have a lot of folks to thank. Um, once again, there's a lot of people who've been supporting us, uh, changing their pledges or or coming on for the first time to the podcast. I know a lot of people have also found the podcast recently, whether it's through um, some of the work I've been doing on the long-term care stuff, or also just I've seen people making suggestions. And so if you're new to Sandy Nora, um, hey. <laughs> Hi. Hey. What's up? Yeah, I hope you like it. <laughs> and <laughs> and I have uh, I have an announcement, actually, and I, for- I didn't even tell you before the show, so this is going to be super fun. So let's show these people out mm. first, and it'll feed into our conversation a little bit about the arts. Okay. So this week, we have to say thank you so, so, so much to Stephanie, Martin, Stuart, Gail, and Puyen. We are so thankful for your help and your contributions to the podcast. Thank you so much. Okay, so I guess I did have something big happen the past week, although everything's so weird right now that what I would consider big normally just looks really normal right now, but my book is available for pre-sale. Wow, that's amazing. I did see that you posted the cover and that looked uh, so exciting, so I'm, I'm so happy for you. This is great. Thank you. Um, and my publisher, Fernwood, has actually given me a secret code for Sandy and Nora listeners Ooh. to get 15% off. Nice. Yeah. So if you're interested in getting a copy of my book, my book is about feminism and the digital age and how we can build a movement that is able to navigate both the real world and online organizing. If that sounds at all interesting to you uh, or you just want to support me or I don't know maybe you hate me and you can read the book and be all like this sucks like that's cool too you just buy a copy um the if you buy it online in the next two weeks and use the secret code which I'm gonna say in a second you will save 15 percent um the book's not out until November so you won't actually get it until November but pre-sale is a really awesome way to support me and to support the publisher Fernwood so the code is fight back all one word. Ooh, great code. Yes. I didn't come up with it. So thanks so much to the folks at Fernwood for that. Um, and the book is called Take Back the Fight, which is a reference to Take Back the Night, which is a really important annual uh, event uh, where folks march at night uh, saying that, you know, we're going to take over our neighborhood. We will not march in fear uh, and we will uh, assert our rights to being in public uh, in dark spaces or in places that we identify popularly as being dangerous towards women, trans people, and non-binary folks. So once again, it's Fight Back, 15% off the book. And that is a thank you to listeners who have been really great the last couple of years. And a big congratulations to you. Thanks. Thanks. And actually, I just got your book. Oh, you did? And... I did, and it is so great. Hey, thank you. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I really do, and I love how you started it off with this futuristic look back at this moment. Yeah. Um, and I know that the conversation that we're going to have was inspired by one of your co-editors of that project. That's right. That's right. Now, um, one of my co-editors' name is Rodney DeVerlis. 
and he is an amazing artist. And we were talking uh, just a couple days ago about the difficulties for artists in this particular moment uh, going through COVID. And uh, just, you know, you know, Rodney's a dancer. And I was just thinking about how many talented people in the arts may need to end their careers right now as a result of a lack of support uh, from the government. And I don't, I don't know, you know, Canada in general does not fund the arts in the same way as a lot of our peer countries do. Uh, Canada's funding for the arts is abysmal. And so the little amounts that's available are so important uh, for making sure uh, that artists are uh, able to contribute to our cultural milieu of stuff. And I, you know, talking to Rodney and other artists that I know about this moment, just realized that coming out of this, uh, our, uh, the Canadian arts landscape can look, is probably going to look a lot different. That is such a scary thought for so many people. And I mean, I come at this as someone who, uh, I mean, I don't make money off of my art, so I can't really say I'm a professional artist, but certainly as a writer, I, I do rely on being able to speak to crowds and to meet people and to talk about ideas and to be able to have the, the, the money to do the work and practice and get better at the things that are my artistic practice or whatever. It's, it's a really scary time. And I've spent a lot of time as well speaking with a friend of mine who is uh, the pianist who uh, who composed and performed the music for Sandy and Nora. Not for us. I mean, <laughs> it's his music and we asked him for it. But uh, this idea that, like, will we ever be able to travel again? Will we ever be able to perform in front of audiences again? Will we ever be in auditoriums or lecture halls or concert halls? How are we ever going to sing in a choir? I mean, Sandy, that have you seen how much, like, the choir world is getting nailed by this? <laughs> Oh, I'm sure they are. I mean, as as I, I don't know, most of our listeners probably don't know this um, unless they've gone to our website and scrolled all the way down to the bottom to read the footnote <laughs> <laughs> that has the very hilarious fact that Nora and I are both uh, previous uh, Canadian choir <laughs> careerists. <laughs> Um, the type of kids that did a lot of traveling, singing Canadian folk songs, um, a lot, a lot coming from the East Coast, and sometimes even songs from as far away as South Africa. If you were like me, you were learning songs in Yiddish and Hebrew as well, just because as a as a result of where I grew up in Toronto. Uh, so we, Nora and I, though we didn't know each other at the time. <laughs> <laughs> doing a lot of singing uh, for people who are a part of the Canadian choir world you know that it is like deep and entrenched <laughs> and very real if you don't know the choir world you're probably like what are they talking about but it's it's very real there are thousands of kids <laughs> traveling that are constantly traveling the country and beyond going abroad to uh, either compete or just perform in choir shows and uh, yeah I you know, it's such a wonderful experience uh, to be a part of something like that. And I mean, certainly for me at one point I was, you know, I, I didn't go to school on Fridays because I was just going, I was singing all day and, and part of my uh, choir practice. Uh, and that would be impossible right now. 
and uh, for those uh, kids and youth. Um, and then when you start to get paid for it, if you if you start doing it, uh, if you continue doing it as a youth or if you're a part of the um, the accompaniment uh, or the conducting team or anything like that, like that, of course, would be decimated. And how heartbreaking, how heartbreaking. Yeah. Have you seen anything in particular about it? Well, like CBC has had a lot of like pick me up kind of uh, pieces, which is I just find like the the more positive these pieces are, the more negative I get towards my radio. Ooh. <laughs> but they had it's just I, I'm not really in the mood for like feel good stuff. And, you know, I get that people are doing their best and, you know, a lot of people do feel better with feel good stuff. So, you know, I'm not going to get totally down on it. But there there was um, a, a, a segment this past week about choral singing and how like it's it is completely de- devastating really devastating and they were speaking to a conductor who is you know saying that the choir has been able to be more social and check in with each other more than they ever had been because they're having weekly zooms or or whatever and, and but you can just hear it's like that's not the point of a yeah. choir i mean like you might make friends by accident but by and large you actually don't yeah. <laughs> like the people in your in yeah your choir it's true it's they don't become a part of your social circle it's a very it's a very like kind of work physical <laughs> thing and and that's the other thing too that people probably don't know if they're thinking about a choir is that it's so physical like um so much of the time that you spend before you're actually sitting singing a piece is like doing breathing exercises or uh visualization exercises or physical exercises to keep all of your muscles intact for singing. <laughs> and so uh, if you're doing that on Zoom, I like I actually just don't know how you would do it on Zoom because so much of it is so physical. And that can be up to half of your of like what a choral practice would take up is like all this physical work. Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, <laughs> the bad Internet connections make being in, in sync really, really hard. Yeah. And so how can you really harmonize? It's just terrible. And it's just one of those things where uh, when we're talking about like losing artists, uh, if you are a child singer and you're looking to do singing professionally in your adulthood, there's a period of time during puberty where if you can sing to a certain point, uh, like a certain octave, Uh, uh, you need to continue singing in that octave or you'll lose it because of what puberty does to your voice. And so it's very important to sing through your puberty years constantly if that's something that you want to do professionally. And if, you know, if that's not something that's happening now, we are we're going to be losing some artists uh, that we uh, may not be able to get back in the future. That's just one of the many ways that we can potentially be losing artists right now. The the pandemic is is like a tsunami, and every industry where the like furniture is not nailed to the floor is going to be washed away. And the government has taken this like announcement by announcement approach to trying to fix whatever industry they're trying to fix of the day of the announcement. And, we, and we've explained why they're doing this. They do this, of course, to have an announcement for every single day so they can keep, you know, driving the headlines. And, they, and they've been, like, pretty much universally successful at doing that. But when the industry that you're talking about is already in crisis, arts, media, literature, I mean... <laughs> 
uh, all of that stuff, in, in especially in English Canada. I mean, Quebec has a star system and it has, has better grants funding for artists and this kind of thing. But, you know, really... This is a, a national issue. This is this is this is affecting um, Quebec artists as well. There has been no individual relief given to artists, right? The only the only relief that we hear is this wage subsidy, which obviously is going to not help artists because you can't perform your art if no one can come and see you. And so, what's the point of having a wage subsidy? And who would subsidize you? Because almost everyone's a freelancer. And um, and then there's the CERB. And so, isn't it so interesting that we have a differential CERB for students, which is bullshit? And that's it. There's no, I mean, if you're going to not create a universal program, which of course last week we explained why that was a bad idea, why we do need a universal program. But if you're not going to create a universal program, then you better at least then pay a full salary to the people who need it. Because thinking about someone like Rodney, I mean, dance just seems like an impossible thing to continue to practice yeah. In this situation. I mean, like, what does that look like when you're trying to maintain your artistic practice if you're a dancer? Yeah. It's it's like if you if you are not eligible for the wage subsidy, which, as you mentioned, many of these artists are not because they work on contracts or they work on freelance. And, and a reminder that when the CERB first came out, freelancers were not eligible. And I just, you know, I just want to know who was around the table thinking, ah, freelancers don't need this. <laughs> like the people who probably need it the most. Um, what a bizarre thing. But OK, now freelancers are eligible. Uh, but, uh, not eligible for the wage subsidy because the wage subsidy is, is for people who are employed more regularly and that wage subsidy can assist in getting people who are in say the production side of things on, on the background, planning stuff back in the office and maybe doing some tasks, but it's not going to help, uh, a dancer or a visual artist, or a singer, someone who needs to continue to keep their craft sharp during the points where they cannot perform and they cannot practice with other people. That I mean, what the government should be doing right now, quite frankly, is paying artists more than a living wage, <laughs> I yeah. think, because it takes a lot of um, extra costs to be an artist, whether that's, you know, rehabilitation costs or uh, costs for certain types of equipment to keep your body uh, or um, uh, space in the type of way that it needs to be kept in order for you to practice your craft. The government needs to be paying well above a living wage directly to artists just so that they can continue to practice. They can continue to keep sharp because coming out of this and quite frankly, going through it, we're going to need the artists. We're going to need these artists. We're going to need the arts to reimagine what our society is going to look like when this is all over or as we continue to go through it. Um, and I think uh, the way that we're responding right now is really going to decimate the art sector. Oh, absolutely it will. I mean, there's no interest in the federal government and most provincial governments to, to, to save the arts. And if anything, it works in their favor to just ignore that whole sector and be like, you know, it'll it'll come back at some point. And as you say, that the the result of that is like a lost generation of artists who, if they don't have the means to continue to support themselves, to be able to practice, to be able to stay on top of 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 their art, uh, it's 
it's not going to be able to survive. They're not going to be able to survive through the pandemic. And I think that one of the, the things that has been just so grating to me is how journalists have not talked about this. And instead, what they do is they focus on these like viral videos that are, I mean, nice. Like I like I like hearing what Yo-Yo Ma is playing every day. That's great. Angela Hewitt has been playing wonderful uh, short uh, Twitter videos. It's been it's been great. Mm-hmm. But like that is not going to save art. And, and you can see like they're popular because people need art. Like we've had this conversation on this podcast before and it, 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 I think it's a useful one to have in the context of the pandemic. Like TikTok is so popular because it's a form of art because there's yeah, there's yeah. dancing and movement and, and, and people conveying messages. And sometimes those messages are really goofy and sometimes those messages are really silly or sometimes those messages are seeing people working really hard to get choreography down with their parents and you're like oh that's so cute right but we're all we're all all touched by that and for some reason that has been what has become art it's become live concerts maybe that we're supposed to feel like is the same as a real concert and and there's no conversation that's being had with Okay, what about like those people whose livelihoods rely on a full theater? And until we have a full theater, and we're not going to have a full theater anytime soon, why in the hell are we not giving them just money? Just giving them money to practice, to keep that, to keep, to, to keep their skills sharp. Because, the, you know, on top of this, like, obsession with viral artistic videos, whether or not, like, the artistic practice is top, 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 or if it's just kind of a funny little video that someone's made, the, it, 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 it helps to obscure the reality of how difficult, I think, artistic life really is in this country. And how if you don't have like those things in place that make being an artist possible, even if it's precarious, which in Canada is, you know, ticket sales and a venue and a production team behind you, or maybe it's just you on a stage, but we physically need to be present. And instead, these videos are standing in for, oh, but we need art. You know, we need art to get through this because the pandemic is so hard. So let's listen to this, this like really beautiful choral montage. Because this is what we need right now. It's like, no, no, no. What about them? What about actually creating real art that can help us get through this crisis that isn't just hoping that people will make something for free and go viral? It's kind of the exact same thing with journalism, right? Like that there's just no journalists around anymore. The few journalists that exist are, are at an a incre- a increasingly small group of newspapers and um and you just, you know, then they're like, well, I just got to pay for it. And then somehow that's going to save the industry. There has to be government support to these folks. And there has to be programs to pay people to survive. Because uh, otherwise there will just be nothing. And I think that politicians are banking on people not really caring about this enough. And I, you know what? I think the only reason why people wouldn't care is because they don't know about it. Because I think I just, I don't, you know, if you're living a life where the arts are not a part, I mean, everybody, it is impossible to live a life where the arts are not a part of your life. Like it just, it's all around us, whether or not we recognize it as arts or not. And so everything from, you know, uh, the film and television industry to the theater, to just the music that you are listening to when you are in the subway and, you know, uh, the, the subs performers who are in the subway, uh, whatever it is, there's art that's all around us. 
And I think that there hasn't been enough uh, news about how the arts are affected uh, through this uh, pandemic that we're going through right now. Um, One of the problems with how uh, what's happening is affecting artists is the way that we support the arts during normal times has kind of continued as though nothing's happened. It's for those of you who are familiar, we're like coming out of, or like in the midst of uh, granting season where, you know, this is a lot of the ways that artists uh, make their money. You know, you, uh, for a little, for a lot of a big chunk of your time are putting a lot of energy into coming up with, um, I don't know, maybe like 20% of an idea, putting it down into paper and uh, begging uh, for granting councils uh, and organizations to give you funding to bring your idea into a full realization at some point later, usually within a year or a couple of years or three years. Some of them are, you know, uh, three-year grants. Uh, And so that hasn't really changed. Uh, The grants are all kind of, you know, from what I know, looking for the same type of stuff. Like they're they're like, okay, cool. So you can't uh, perform in a theater, Um, perform online, (laughs) you know. And I don't think, you know, Nora and I talked a little bit about this uh, just earlier, but I, I don't think people understand how difficult it can be to take a craft that is meant to be in person and to put it online. How does one, uh, as a dancer, recreate the space, the tech, uh, and all of the other people that are all a part of a show and put that online? Like, what venue are you going to book? Unless you have a big house, what venue are you going to book? Maybe you have to book a space outside that's going to be more expensive, that's going to eat up more of your grant if you do, in fact, get the grant. Okay, so now you're outside. Well, now you have to think about lighting. You have to think about when it's happening. Uh, You have to think about whether or not there's going to be foot traffic or how you're going to make sure that you're cordoned off. And then you have to think about how you're going to live stream it. And then you're going to have to think about how you appear on screen. Where are the boundaries? Like the, the, the amount of work that it would take to take a theater production or a stage production something that happens physically in front of you and put even even if it's for something like a visual artist you know like so much of visual art is texture you can't put texture on a screen you can't do it (laughs) so you know I just it just seems so weird that um and you know this is not just the arts but so many industries are trying to continue do as much as they can to continue as normal when it is so clear that that can't happen. It just seems to me like the best thing to do right now would be to just give the grants out to as many people as possible with no complete show or complete project in mind. Totally. Just let people continue their craft. Because the other thing is the class, the class-based issue with this. Already in Canada, because it is so... Under, because the arts are so underfunded, um, m- most of the people who are able to dedicate their lives to the arts 
are folks who can afford to do something like that, who have, um, who are, are maybe independently wealthy or have parents who are willing to uh, fund uh, their passion uh, where a government system and a granting system just can't cover um, a, uh, a, you know, like a, a well-lived lifestyle. Uh, for, for folks who are, are super wealthy and are artists, this is not going to be the biggest issue. Perhaps you can, perhaps there's a studio in your home or a studio that you have access to uh, where you can continue to, to do what you need to do. Uh, but for folks who rely desperately on that money, it's it's just not enough. No, and, and the thing about a, a moment like this is that, you know, we could we could really change society in a, in a profound way if we were committed to doing that. And I mean, it's clear that no government is, and, and there's not much excuse for there to be no desire to do that. It's actually a fertile moment for art, right? Everyone's talking about use this time to be productive, be productive, be productive. And like, I would love to use this time to be productive. I'm, I'm like all about being like as active and, and just doing as much as I can at this moment. Unfortunately, I have two kids that I have to watch. And so I really can't be productive or at least as productive as I want to be. But if we were actually allowing people to use this moment of idleness and of collective fear and anxiety to be able to fill our lives with something that's artistic, it would actually it would actually change so much about the generalized anxiety that we are feeling around this crisis. And like, I'm thinking of something super basic. So at the start of the crisis in Quebec, people started posting rainbows that said, ça va bien aller, things will be okay. And I don't know, and it went kind of national, right? You know, we, I saw it all over Quebec and then I started to see it in, in English in, in the rest of Canada. And, and the, the artistic expression of people saying ça va bien aller in windows all over the town now. Like, I mean, it's small and minor, but it's also this like, wow, we're really in this together. When you give money, pour money into artists who all they want to do is have enough money to live and practice their art. Like we will create, we will create things that will bring us together that we can't even think about right now. Because as you say, we are mm -hmm. so tied in the logic of a system that already didn't work. I mean, like launching this book right now is just so bizarre because I wasn't eligible for any granting money. So I wrote this whole thing on a $2,000 advance, which I have to make back in the sales of the book, which is Unbelievable. I mean, I paid d wow. double that for a, a weekend of drywalling, right? <laughs> to a guy. <laughs> right. And, yeah. And so the way I had to write my book was that I had to like fit it in like an hour here, an hour here, and an hour there between my paid work. Like that's that was what I had to do. And I'm I'm lucky in that, you know, I didn't have to toil over every word in, in the way that a lot of other writers do, um, especially if you're a fiction writer where you really have to toil over every single word. So, you know, we already have this situation where it's not tenable to be an artist and so people aren't free to actually create the art that they can imagine and so then we're all like way worse off in society because all we have are fucking tiktok videos a bunch of viral choral arrangements and maybe what we're watching on netflix yeah and and then there's this disconnect between consuming art from a different time 
and now. And so like reading books where people are getting together or watching videos where people are like gathering, it's like, what? This is so weird. You're not allowed to do that right now. No, no. Where is the art that is being created by people who can actually define, interpret, color, uh, change, give meaning to, take meaning away from the current moment while also giving money to those artists whose art we wouldn't see necessarily because they are practicing, because they actually do have to wait until the stage opens up again. I mean, there's a reason why the stage, why live theater, why live concerts have have always continued to, to, to exist past the next latest technology. And it's because we need to be together and we need to be gathering around these artistic expressions of humanity. And, f- and where is the government in all this? They are so negligent. They're doing literally yeah. nothing for artists. And it yeah. is such yeah. a shame. It's such a shame. Um, the other piece of this that's uh, really critical is how racialized it all is. Um, and again, something that uh, seems so obvious after my discussion with Rodney, but I did not uh, think about beforehand. Much like newsrooms, the way that diversity uh, expresses itself uh, in the arts, and I mean like diversity as a goal of artistic organizations that in Canada tend to be very white, is that the performers or people who are uh, audience facing is where you will start to see, where we are starting to see uh, the hires of racialized black and indigenous people in the performing arts industry. That has not made its way, again, much like newsrooms, into the production teams, who are still very, very white. And that affects the type of work, the type of artistic work that is available to audiences, just generally, in the best of times. So now, uh, with COVID, uh, and the way that the government has chosen to uh, provide emergency support to our society, uh, when you have something like the wage subsidy, where you can bring some people who are back, who were maybe on staff on a production team, back into the office uh, to do some sort of work because it is being subsidized by the government, those are going to be the folks who are white. Uh, coming by and large, the folks who are white coming back into the office, able to have some sort of wage subsidy so that they can uh, continue to afford their lives. But the people who are front facing, audience facing, that's where most of the racialized folks are. And they're not going to benefit from a wage subsidy because they're on contract. They're only there for the time of the performance. Um, And the way that the government chooses to fund the arts in general, of course, is racialized. But now, just like everything else, is far exacerbated because of the way that COVID is affecting everybody uh, just living their daily lives. This conversation has uh, kind of depressed me a little bit. Because, because, yeah, I, 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 I suspect that you and I share the same um, feelings towards wasted talent and wasted opportunity or missed opportunity. Yeah. And people not having that chance or that break that they need to be able to get into whatever it is that they're hoping to get into. Mm-hmm. It's just like on, on one hand, I mean, if if you're a young person and you're able to use this time to learn a new craft or a new a new instrument or a, a new form of painting or a new form of, of, of whatever, like that's wonderful and that's really, really great. And you have to be set up to be able to do that, which it, it comes with a level of privilege that not everybody has. 
And so the folks that relied on being in school, that rely on being in a university or in college, that relied on whatever they were supposed to be in this summer. My God, I think of Rodney and what he had lined up for himself this summer. And it's just like, oh, my God, so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And not just Rodney, a lot of my friends. I mean, right when this, this crisis hit, I had one friend who said something like he had just learned 300 pages of a, of a piano piece by memory for a concert that wow. will never happen. Oh my God. (laughs) You're just like, so heartbreaking. It is so heartbreaking. And, and this is where, um, the, the 30 years of like neoliberal economic policy flies in the face of what we really, really, really need, which is that we just need to flood artists with money so that they can use this time, not worrying about where their next paycheck is coming uh, getting through the, 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 the sadness and the grief of losing whatever it was that they had right on the horizon, getting through a, a moment of uncertainty where you don't know, will we ever go back into a concert hall together? And to, to really focus on, okay, then what is artistic expression look like within a pandemic? Because, I mean, you know, everyone's tied to these romantic notions of, of well, Shakespeare wrote King Lear uh, during, uh, the, uh, during a, a plague pandemic. And, you know, you can look at that and go, oh, why does everyone expect us to be productive, which is a fair way to react to something like that. But the other way to react to that, um, and this is more where I am, is that in these moments where societal truths are, are laid bare, where we have idle time, where we actually have time where all we're doing is thinking or sitting with ourselves or we're sitting with our families and we can't travel and we can't look forward to anything. All of that mental space that I used to use to look forward to my next trip or my next thing or the next event, seeing the next person that I might be seeing is all gone. And and now for me is a moment where I would just love to be able to create. And as I said, I, I don't have the, the familial situation to be able to do that right now but for the artists that do have that situation the last thing that they should be worried about is getting their shit together to apply for grants and worrying about where their next meal is or their rent because they didn't get a rent break like so many small businesses and they didn't get enough to live through the CERB and and so all of that artistic energy is being funneled into survival and it's at all of our expenses because we all benefit when art is created and then put out into the world And that is what a government should be doing. I mean, if you're a liberal and you're listening to this right now, my God, like talk within your 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 caucus, Adam Vaughn, man. I know you listen. (laughs) Please, Adam Vaughn. (laughs) Get get money into the hands of artists that is unrestricted and that is a lot. (laughs) Let them live for the next two years, let's say, a two-year runway, regardless of what we of where we are, and see what can be created. The other thing uh, that may be a consideration uh, for for all of the the granting organizations out there, like so much of these grants are tied to a production that comes out at the end. You know, if we give space for artists to just uh, do their thing in these next two years, Production might look different. Like what is produced might look completely different. The possibilities for what can be produced may look completely different. But I guarantee you that someone is not going to be able to come up with what that is within, you know, a week of working on a grant proposal. Like that's not going to happen. Let people just work on their crafts and 
I, you know, beautiful things will come of people being able to work on their craft unhindered during this time. And we will need it. We need it. We so desperately need it. That's, I mean, as Nora said, that's why TikTok is such a thing right now. I don't have TikTok, but I see it on the Twitter timeline or on Instagram. So I know that it's like such a big thing right now. And I appreciate it too. I think it's fun and funny, but I also want to see uh, more, you know, like I love going to the theater. I I love going to dance shows. I like doing those things. I want to see more of that. I want to make sure that people who would have, who are in the best most talented places to be able to make sense of this moment through their art. I need that. I want that. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure that many people who are listening to this right now also want and need that. And so let's not tie everything to a production. Let's just let it be. Let's just try it. It might, it might even be something to consider post-COVID, you know, <laughs> that not everything needs to be tied to some production uh, that we have in mind at the beginning of writing a grant. There's so much beauty that can come from just letting people do their thing. But there's actually such an amazing tie into activism here. Because you, could you imagine that activism was funded by like a grant proposal where you had to say what the outcome of that activism was going to be? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, it, it's like activism only works when you have all these people in a room together that are all different, that are, might be oriented towards some sort of goal. And you come up with these like completely different ideas, some of some of them workable, some of them totally not workable. And you move together through that process. Um, when you look at like tying activism and it's actually at the top of my mind because I just had to write um, a report to Heritage Canada for a grant that I was involved with. Uh, So we were given a grant this year for the commemoration of the uh, shooting at the mosque uh, from January 29th, 2017. So Heritage Canada gave us $9,000. And when I applied for that grant in September, we, the committee had only met to say we should apply for this grant. And we had to give them 18 weeks advance notice for this grant okay so we handed it in exactly 18 weeks early and what we proposed and what actually happened were completely different things I mean I just invented stuff to get that grant application approved based on what we did the year before so it wasn't like complete inventation but it was like I don't know if this is what we're going to do this year and we went from going from having a very beautiful and solemn uh, uh, vigil where people stand at the front of the room, they talk, everyone's standing watching the front of the room and that's the, that's the event, to a giant community dinner that no one could envisage, envisage and actually had someone come from Heritage Canada to the event and he was like blown away. And so I'm doing this wrap up, like how how is your event? How is it different? How is it the same? And it was just like, why did you make us go through those hoops Like, if you're supporting Mm -hmm. what we're doing, then you support what we're doing. And if it's a flop, then, you know, then we can talk about it after. But is it going to be a flop? I mean, look what we're commemorating. Is it going to be a flop? It's not going to be a flop. And with art, like, who cares if it's a flop? Who cares if this is totally avant-garde and you don't get it? Because they're interpreting something that maybe is over your head. (laughs) It's part of the process. Yeah. It's part of the process, yeah. So I totally agree with you and... How how would you be experiencing this this crisis if you had the comfort of art that was being created in this crisis right now? 
Huh, that's interesting. Um, I don't know because I don't know what it would look like. I don't know it would be available to me. Like I'm certainly doing I'm I'm watching a lot of uh like television and stuff like that. I have also, as I told you before the show, I bought a guitar, <laughs> which I I have had guitars before in my life. Uh, I have my I have my guitar it's still in Toronto. Um I'm not a very good player, <laughs> but uh, I needed something like that in my life uh, right now to be able to uh, deal with all of the uh, pressures of school and the stress of just generally COVID and worrying about stuff in my family and so on. So, uh, you know, that has been a, a piece of artistic expression that I engage in every night before bed. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't know what would be possible in general if I were able to just engage in the arts. I do know, um, that I miss it. I miss the ability to, uh, go out and engage in the arts, whether it be going to a museum or going to a live show. Um, that's something that I really value in my life. Even if I don't have the opportunity to do it all the time, I work with a lot of artists too in my activism work. And um, so not being able to create with those artists right now in the same way is is quite devastating. It's hard. How about for you? We are so impoverished in Canada at the, of the level of local art that is elevated beyond like the small communities that it might come from. And we're so reliant on American uh, pop culture and then Canadian pop culture that kind of gets made in reaction to American pop culture. And it's like, there's a place for that, but it seems like the balance has been tipped such that that's all we have. And I just think that, you know, if we don't have what we are as a society in all of our flaws and all of our beauty reflected back to us in an art that is rooted in the the moment that we are experiencing, then we're going to have a lot of a, like a hard time understanding what's happening to us, interpreting what's happening to us, and seeing our, our way out of this horrible situation. And, um, and, and there's an easy fix. Like the government could, could fix this overnight. And I, I hope they do. And for all the artists that are listening, I mean, like, thank you so much. Like the, the other, the funny thing about artistic practice is that these folks are like the most talented at what they do at a level is that's like more talented than most of us at anything <laughs> like at all. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't support them. And instead, not only do we not support them, but we ask them to live in like poverty to be able to do what they do. And it's just so unfair. So let's take this moment and maybe fix this one small aspect of society that has always been fucked in English Canada <laughs> and, and maybe give some love to, to artists by way of no strings attached funding. 